please join me in welcoming Rabbi Toker to Orange County. My children were made in Japan <laughs> for export. Um, truth is that I, uh, my home was in Tokyo. I was the only rabbi from India to Japan. So I was in charge of religious education, culture, synagogues of India, China, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, Burma, Thailand, you name it. There was no uh, university-trained, English-speaking rabbi between India and Tokyo. And so that was my congregation. So I had an opportunity to travel and to visit them, and it opened my eyes to an entire world that I'd never heard of, was never taught, uh, never read about, no one even mentions, and I had no idea that it exists. We always think that we're Westerners, that we're a Western people, that Judaism is a Western religion, we're the foundation of Western society, that we never lived in the Eastern world. The truth is that that's really a bubba mice. It's really not true. There are times when there are interesting, fascinating, unusual, exotic, influential Jewish communities in the Eastern world rather than the Western world. We don't read about them. We don't teach about them. We don't think about them. Now, we all have heroes. You know, we tell our children about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc. The truth is, I tell my children about heroes that you don't know about. And they became my heroes. I hope that they become your heroes because they lived in a different part of the world and it did some amazing and fascinating things. So really all I'm trying to do is to attempt to open your mind and open your eyes and open your heart to the possibility or probability of a Jewish community, a Jewish ex existence, and a Jewish history in an area very far away from us, geographically as well as mentally, namely the Far East. Let's start with a Chinese story. Well, maybe not even a Chinese story. Jewish family in Poland, that's very typical. Have a baby. He's a big baby. Maybe about 15 pounds. That's a big baby. And uh, was always larger than life. His name since birth was Fat Moshe. And he was Fat Moshe. He really was big. The family went through a pogrom or some discrimination, picked up and left Poland and went to England to the east end of London. And the father was a shamus in a little small orthodox synagogue. Moshe was a problem. He was a problem most of his life. For example, when he was six years old, six years old, he was arrested by the British for stealing from the docks of London. He was stealing wood, which he sold as firewood, six years old. So he already has a criminal record. When he was about nine or ten, he went into business. He was an entrepreneur. That's very, very nice. He went into a business with an adult. The business was that they would walk through a very nice neighborhood like where you live, and they'd look for a choice window, maybe like one of these, and Moshe would throw a rock right through that window. And his partner, five minutes later, you know, and would go by with a bell with glass on his back, offered to repair the window, and they split the profits 50-50. He was arrested for that entrepreneur effort as well. He played hooky all the time from school. Was the truant? He's really giving the police a very, very hard time. When he was a teenager, teenager, back basically about 14, 15 years old, he became a prize fighter, so a boxer. Now, you can't be a boxer under the age of 18, but when he was 14, he looked like he was 24. He was big, strong, and husky, and he fought under the name of Cockney Cohen. <laughs> so Cockney Cohen is now in the ring. But he would never fight on Friday night because if he wasn't home with his father and mother for the Shabbos meal, his father would beat the hell out of him. And so he, you know, 
He would fight on other nights. But he got into so much trouble, so much trouble, pickpocketing, among other things, that he was sent to reform school. We don't use that term today. It's not very politically correct. Reform school is not a school for training of reform rabbis, incidentally. <laughs> it's a, it's a uh, school for delinquents. And the, there were quite a few Jewish students there. And the Jewish community, called the Jewish Board of Deputies, was embarrassed that there were Jewish delinquents. And we have to hide our own problems. And so they created a Jewish reform school. And student number eight in this Jewish reform school is Morris Abraham Cohen, also known as Fat Moshe. He's in that school. He runs away. He steals money. He steals food from the kitchen. He's a big, big, big tsaris. But you know and I know that the right teacher with the right student at the right time can make a world of difference. And he met that teacher right there at that school who said to him, Moshe, you're going to be a bum all of your life. He says, why do you say that? He says, you're so tall. You're so handsome. You're larger than life. When he was in the room, he commanded the presence of the room. He really was a presence. He said, you talk like a bum. No one even knows what you're saying. He says, why don't you speak a grammatically correct English sentence? Why don't you pronounce the words clearly? Maybe let's say he's a speech therapist. And he teaches him how to talk correctly and properly, to pronounce his words and speak a grammatically correct sentence. So much so that on parents' visiting day at the Jewish Reform School, they put on a Shakespearean play, which was nice. And the parents complained that it was not right for, this, for the school to engage a professional actor to play the lead of the Shakespearean play. There was no professional actor. It was Moshe Cohen who played the lead and learned how to speak English. He served his time, and he comes home. He comes home, and his father says to him, he says, you know, Moshe, you'll get nowhere in England. You're an ex-con. You have a number. You look for a position, look for a job, want to go to school, right away your ID, boom. You serve time. You have no future here. You'll be a garbage collector, nothing else. You can't do anything. But we've been thinking about what to do, and we have some distant you know, cousin in Toronto. And we've written to him, and he says there's gold in the streets. And he owns stores and owns apartment houses and doing so well. Send him to me, I'll take him under my wing and put him on his feet, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as Moshe comes home, boom, he's shipped off to Canada. He arrives in Canada and meets his long-lost cousin who says, uh, there's no gold in the streets. I don't own any stores. I have no apartment buildings. I don't even have a job. And I don't have a penny to my name. But what am I going to write home? That I'm a failure? So I write this cock and bull story. I can't help you in any way, and I'm surprised that you're here. But if you want to do something with your life, Moshe, go west, young man, go west. There's a Canadian west, and there's an American west. Now, Canadian west is, uh, is uh, Winnipeg, it's uh, Calgary, Saskatchewan. And he puts him on a train. Not that he buys a ticket, you know, he just gets on the train, and he ends up in Wapella and works on a farm. What does he know about being a farm? Then he becomes a cowboy. What does he know about being a cowboy? And so eventually he goes to the city. He worked very hard. He tried to keep his, uh, his reputation you know, clean, and it really wasn't so clean. He got caught a couple times pickpocketing, uh, selling fake jewelry, fake watches, but uh, any way to make a living. But he met somebody there that he looked for for the rest of his life and never found him. 
Because what did we do out west at night? What did we do there? Well, what we would do is we'd go to a saloon. You call it a bar today, but it was a saloon, and they play cards. What are the boys going to do? They play cards. And one fellow taps him on the shoulder. He says, you know, Moshe, you're a very good card player, but don't you know that everybody is cheating? You know, the fellow is smoking a pipe. He's not smoking a pipe. He has a mirror in the pipe. He sees all the cards that you have. And the other guy has an ace up his sleeve. I'm not telling you to cheat. But if they're cheating, you better beat them at their own game. And he taught them every trick in the book. He looked for them for the rest of his life. He never found them. Anyway, Moshe's now making a lot of money at that card table. And he is doing well. And he met an unusual group. There was a disenfranchised group in the Canadian West like the American West. That's the overseas Chinese, building the railroad, panning for gold, and the Chinese restaurant and the Chinese laundry. Who cared about the Chinese? No one. Who protected the Chinese? No one. If the sheriff didn't have money to pay his rent at the end of the month, what would he do? He would arrest the Chinese, charge him the bail, take the bail, pay the rent. Who would say anything? Nobody. If you didn't have enough money to pay your rent, you grab a Chinese in the street, you turn him upside down, his wallet falls out, the coins fall out, smack him in the face, take the money and walk away. Who would say anything? Nobody. But if Cohen saw you do that, he'd leave you for dead in the street. And he befriended the Chinese. They understood him, he understood them. He told them Hasidic stories that he heard from his father at the Shabbos table, and they told him stories from Lao Tse Confucius. Let me tell you something, they're the same stories. They're exactly the same stories. Easy to transfer one to the other. And they told him about his rich culture that they have in China, and he told him about the Jewish culture, etc. And he identified with the Chinese. And once he walked into a Chinese luncheonette during an armed robbery where the gunman had the gun, emptied the cash register, took the wallet from the proprietor, and there was nobody in there, took the watch, and the Shlemiel was fighting to get the ring off his finger, and he couldn't get the ring off his finger and didn't realize that somebody walked into the restaurant. Cohen tiptoed behind him, gave him one shot, knocked him out cold, took the watch and the wallet and the money, gave it back to the Chinese and walked out. In a second, all the Chinese knew that one person defended them, didn't take a penny for himself, and he was then inducted into the Chinese society. He was their friend and their buddy. He would hang out with them. He started to learn the language. World War I comes. Now, you know, time frame, 1914. Canada is part of the British Empire. They're part of the whole system. And so they're going off to France, and they're fighting in the war. Everybody gets drafted. The Canadian government has a problem. They now have Chinese in the Canadian Army. And there's a Chinese regiment in the in, there's a Chinese regiment in the Canadian Army. Who's going to be the battalion commander for a Chinese regiment in the Canadian Army? Guess who? Cohen. They go over to France, come back with all the medals, and he got slightly wounded, actually, in, uh, but not seriously, got wounded. And they come back after the war, and they come back big heroes. The Chinese now are whispering, and whispering, somebody's coming secretly to Canada. Big secret. Who's coming? Sun Yat-sen, Dr. Sun Yat-sen. He's the George Washington of China. He's coming and wants to overthrow the last of the emperors 
maybe saw the movie about the last emperor. The last of the Qing dynasty wants to overthrow them, produce a free, democratic, progressive, forward-looking China, a republic of China. No more of these Ming emperors. We don't need that anymore. But the emperors didn't like that too much. And there was a price of $100,000 on his head, dead or alive. So Sun Yat-sen is now walking around so openly. And he only meets with Chinese, because if he meets publicly, he's going to get a bullet in his head. So he meets with the Chinese in Canada. He wants money. He wants them to come home, wants them to support the revolution, and maybe fight in the revolution to free China and help any way they can help. Like, we want to help Israel, they want to help China. And so the Chinese say to him, there's one white person here, one foreigner here that we want you to meet. He says, no, 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 no. I don't talk to foreigners. They say, if you don't talk to him, you don't talk to us. He's one of us. Never heard that before. He said, well, I want to talk... Either you talk to all of us, or you talk to nobody. Well, had no choice. And so they arrange a meeting of Sun Yat-sen with Fat Moshe, Morris Abraham Cohen. And that meeting was an amazing meeting. It was a meeting of the minds. They were on the same wavelength. They understood each other exactly. And Sun Yat-sen asked Cohen if he would come to China and help in the cause. Cohen said no. He said, why not? He said, I promised my parents that I would not leave Canada unless I married a Jewish girl. And I know what's going to happen if I go to China. And I cannot do that. He said, what if I talk to your parents? He said, Gesundheit, talk to my parents. <laughs> Sun Yat-sen talks to his parents and promises that he will not marry a Chinese girl. And if there's a Jewish girl to be found, he'll find him a Jewish girl. And if not, he's going to send her back to Canada. He made that deal. And he kept that. Incidentally, he kept that deal. Anyway, Sun Yat-sen asked Cohen, uh, do you have a gun? He says, oh, two-gun Cohen. He's no more Morris Abraham Cohen. He's now two-gun Cohen. He goes to China, becomes the private bodyguard of the president of China, Dr. Sun Yat-sen. He was the aide-de-camp, ADC, to the first president of China. No one got in to see Sun Yat-sen alone without crossing through Sunyat, without crossing through Cohen. And if Cohen didn't like the look in your eyes, you didn't get through that door. He became the Secretary of Treasury of, of the first government of the Republic of China. He smuggled arms into China for them to defend themselves. Interesting. When he smuggled arms, he was shipping arms from America, from Europe, all of the crates with machine guns, rifles, hand grenades, were all marked Singer sewing machines, large Singer sewing machines. Okay, so they knew on the other side, if you get a box that says Singer sewing machines, don't throw it. Could be hand grenades in there. To this day, to this day, and they don't know why, in the Chinese army, the communist Chinese army, People's Liberation Army, the term they use today for a submachine gun is Singer. And they don't know where it came from, but actually it came from Tugun Cohen, who that's the way he was hiding the shipments. He built the railroads between the cities. He created the first foreign service, or the intelligence network, the spy network. There's a book on the history of the Chinese Secret Service. First two chapters deal with Tugun Cohen. He became a general in the Chinese army. 
That is amazing. A general in the Chinese, the first general, Jewish general in the Chinese army. And he also served after Sun Yat-sen died, he served with Chiang Kai-shek as a general. Sun Yat-sen died before his time. He died young. He really died young. Sun Yat-sen said, I die for China. I know I'm going to be the first president of China to die, and every king and queen and president and prime minister will come to the funeral. I don't want anybody at that funeral because nobody helped us. Only Chinese permitted at my funeral. I die for China. One exception. Tugun Cohen. He led the funeral procession in top hat and tails for the funeral for the first president of China. Isn't that an amazing story? And we never heard of this guy, Tugun Cohen. Now, Tugun Cohen dies. He dies in the 1970s in England. He went back incidentally to Canada. He did marry a Jewish girl. It wasn't a great marriage, but he did marry a Jewish girl. Um, anyway, Sun Yat said, Tugun Cohen dies, and he's buried in England. Who goes to the funeral? Interesting debate. Sun Yat-sen is the first president of China. Who's the second? Chiang Kai-shek says, I'm number two. Mao Zedong says, I'm number two. So they have a debate, actually a war between the two. But both of them loyal to number one. And that number one is Sun Yat-sen. Both Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek are loyal to Sun Yat-sen and to his personal closest friend, Tugun Cohen, the only person who could fly nonstop from Taipei to Beijing was a plane that has Tugun Cohen in it because they both respected it. They, he tried to make peace between the two, but obviously he failed. When he died in the 1970s and he's buried uh, in England, the question was, who goes to the funeral? Mao Zedong says, we are going to the funeral. Chiang Kai-shek said, we are going to the funeral. At that time, the two Chinas never appeared together civilly. They were at war with each other, firing over the, you know, the Straits, the bay between Taiwan and China. The only time the two Chinas appeared together side by side in respect and honor, bringing the wreath of flowers, the only time the two Chinas were together was at the Jewish funeral of Morris Abraham Cohen, Tugun Cohen. There's a street in Shanghai today in a nice neighborhood called Cohen Boulevard, named for this Cohen. I used to think that the story ended there. And then one day I was reading the uh, diary of a rabbi in New York who was a major Zionist, and he tells the story about how the state of Israel was created. After World War II, the United Nations started in where? San Francisco. Started in San Francisco before they moved to Lake Success and to Manhattan and Flushing Meadows. Anyway, it started in San Francisco. And the way they arranged the United Nations, there were certain nations that if they voted no, it was a veto. Like America, France, England, Russia, and China. If they voted no, forget about it, we're not interested in it. They had the veto power. There was a question about what to do with Palestine. What to do with Palestine? The British have a mandate on Palestine. They hoped the problem couldn't be solved and everyone would give it back to England so they would stay there. But they said, we're giving it to the United Nations, hoping that it would fail. And so now the debate goes on. 
And you have the Arabs on one side and Jews and Zionists from Israel from here lobbying on the other side. Then it's getting ready to the vote and you find out what's going on. Well, England will abstain because they're involved with it, they won't vote. France, guilt feelings over the Holocaust, will vote for partition to create a Jewish state. Okay. America will vote in favor of partition to produce a Jewish state and an Arab state. Russia, the anti-Semitic Russia, will vote in favor of partition to produce a Jewish state. Why? To push the British away from the oil. Not because they wanted a Jewish state, but they wanted to push the British out of the Middle East so it would serve Russian interests to vote in favor of the partition. China will vote no. China will vote no, and that's the end of the story. There's no partition and no Jewish state. Give it back to the British. Why will China vote no? Because the Arabs got to the Chinese. And they said, hey, what is this here? We're Asians. This is colonialism. What's this Jews from Poland all of a sudden coming here to Tel Aviv? You feel sorry for the Jews? Give them Poland. What are you doing here? Coming in, you know, we live here. We don't need all these Jews coming here. Enough is enough. Leave them in, they're from Europe, leave them in Europe. You feel sorry for them, give them half of Europe. And China will vote no, because they were convinced by the Arabs that this was a colonial Jewish takeover of Palestine. And the Zionist leaders, Abba Hill Silver, Stephen Weiss, others, trying to reach the Chinese to talk to them. They don't answer the phone. They don't answer telegrams. They don't answer the letter, and they're at wit's end. China votes no, there's no Jewish state, 2,000 years shot to hell. So what do they do? Rabbi Goldstein says, wait a second, I kept reading in the Yiddish paper about this Jewish general in the Chinese army. Where is he? They track him down in Montreal, track him down in Canada, give him a phone call, as you call on you, get on the first plane to San Francisco. He was a big Zionist, incidentally. Anyway, he gets on the plane to San Francisco, comes there, meets with him, he says, what's going on? He said, you know, we're creating a Jewish state. He said, I know. He said, we're trying to get a partition of Palestine to a Jewish state, Arab state, fine. He says, it's coming up to a vote of the United Nations, and China will vote no. And if China votes no, it's a veto, and we have nothing to say anymore. It's finished. He says, China will vote no? He says, who's China? He says, General Wu, W-U. He says, let's try that one more time. Who's China? He says, General Wu is the head of the delegation. He says, General Wu? He says, I made him a general. What do you mean, General Wu? I'll go see him in the morning. You call him in the afternoon. Cohen goes to see General Wu. Rabbi Goldstein in the afternoon calls General Wu. And General Wu says, Rabbi, where have you been? I've been trying to reach you. Where have you been? What? You think China voted no? I don't think so. China did not vote no. Who turned it around? General Tugun Cohen. What an amazing fellow. They're making a movie about him now, incidentally. What an interesting guy. What an amazing guy. How much he accomplished. And all of this really is just one page. Just to open your eyes to what's going on in another part of the world. I'll tell you about somebody else. David Marshall. Who knows the name? That's pretty quiet here, you know. Jewish family. Lives in Iran, in Persia. Name is Moshal, which is a ruling family, aristocratic family. And the Shah changes the monetary system from coins, metal coins, to paper money. The peasants, the peasants, 
They don't want paper money. That's not money. You want money, you put in your teeth, you put in the mattress. You want metal intrinsic value. Paper money, nonsense. And so the peasant who has nothing would take that paper money to the bank, and they gave him 60 cents on the dollar. The peasant who had nothing lost 40% of their wages because he didn't trust the paper money. The Shalski, whoever doesn't give 100 cents, the next payday they take the money to the bank, they get 50 cents on the dollar. They lost half their money. So the Shah has to stop it, so he makes a sweep. What does the Shah do? He arrests about seven Jewish bankers. These were not bankers. There were no Jewish bankers. These were Jewish clerks in the bank. Put them in a sack with a rock, drop them in the river, don't start up with this anymore. There was one fellow who got arrested, also worked in the bank, and they took him to the prison, and there was no room in the prison. It was full. So they said, come back in the morning. I'm not sure going to come back to the prison in the morning. <laughs> So talks to his family. They had connections. Someone in the family was a wet nurse in the Shah's palace. They got to the Shah, told him the situation. He says, I can't stop this. I'll do you one favor. You've got 24 hours to get out of the country. If you're here in 24 hours, you're going to get arrested, and I can't stop it. Family picked up and ran. The family ran to Baghdad. But one brother kept on running and ended up in Singapore. Ended up in Singapore. And they changed their name from Moshal to Marshall. Had a son whose name was David Marshall. David Marshall was one of these kids who was born a super genius. He didn't you know, waste his time playing ball or reading comic books. He was always studying seriously. From sandbox through first grade, middle school, high school, university, law school, he was always number one in his class. Always number one. I met him. He was absolutely brilliant and a very, very nice, charming fellow became a prominent attorney, had an office in the Bank of China building, which was a really the prestigious building of Singapore. World War II starts, and the British say that Singapore will never fall. Well, in 10 days it fell. And Marshall is taken as a POW, becomes a slave laborer in a Japanese labor camp, and at the end of the war, he weighed less than 70 pounds. He thought he would not live another week, probably correct, but the war ended, he goes back to Singapore. His mother starts to feed him, gets back on his feet. Colonialism is finished. The British are going to leave Singapore. The French should leave and are going to leave French Indochina, what you call Vietnam. The British are going to leave India. The Dutch are going to leave the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia. And the Americans are going to leave the Philippines. Colonialism is dead. Everybody should go home to their own country. Well. Singapore is about 95% Chinese. Chinese who do not live in China. Overseas Chinese, they're called. And there are Jews there, Arabs there, Malays there, etc. Singapore holds its first election for its first prime minister, what they call chief minister. And it's a Chinese state, 95% Chinese. Guess who becomes the first prime minister of Singapore? David Marshall president of the synagogue. And if you go to the synagogue in Singapore today, you'll see a chair. And it says, the chair of David Marshall, president Jewish community of Singapore, first prime minister of Singapore. Anyway, as the uh, prime minister of Singapore, he will be invited to the People's Republic of China. Why? Because he's the head of state of a Chinese country. That he ain't Chinese is a minor matter, but he gets invited as the head of a Chinese state. So he's invited to the People's Republic of China. And they wine him and dine him, goes all around the country. 
Then he sits down with Joe and Lai, who's a talented premier. And Joe and Lai says to him, uh, he says, you are the prime minister of a Chinese country. He said, yes. He says, the overwhelming majority of the population are Chinese, yes. Can any Chinese, any time in his life, if he wishes to come home to the ancient homeland, can they come home? It's a free country. Go to the airport, go wherever you want to go. He says, any Chinese can come? He says, anybody can go anywhere. It's a free country. Mm. He said, you're a lawyer. Yes. He said, write it in the Constitution. He says, write what? He says, write in the Constitution that by constitutional right, it should be part of the fabric of the society. Who knows what's going to be in 100 years? Write in the Constitution that any Chinese, by constitutional right, if ever he wishes to return to the homeland, has constitutional right to return to the People's Republic of China. David Marshall says, you know, you don't write this Mishagas in the Constitution. You have the Bill of Rights, the right to vote, the equality, etc. You don't write in the Constitution. If a Chinese, sometime in his life, wants to go to China, he said, it doesn't fit in the Constitution. He says, nevertheless, put it in the Constitution. Who knows what's going to be in the future? So David Marshall says, I really appreciate your interest and concern for the free Chinese who live in Singapore who can go anywhere they want. He said, today is Monday. He says, do you know where I was on Saturday? He said, no. He says, I was in Shanghai on Saturday. Oh, very nice. He said, do you know what I did on Saturday? He says, no. He said, I went to the synagogue on Saturday morning in Shanghai. Oh, and you know what I learned? He said, what? That there are Jews living here in Shanghai, and they have all applied to return to the Jewish ancestral homeland, Israel, and you won't let them out of the country. And you asked me to worry about the Chinese. Joe Enlai says, China in principle would never do that. He said, it may be, but they all said they've applied to leave the country and you won't let them out of the country. Joe Enlai says, I don't want to talk about it. He says, you may not want to talk about it, but I'm going to have a press conference when I'm ready to leave and I'm going to talk about it. This I can document. Following, I cannot document. Joe Enlai, at the end of the meeting, you know, goes back to his office and goes to the foreign ministry, home ministry, and says, so I just had a meeting with the prime minister of Singapore. He tells me that there were Jews in Shanghai who've applied to go to Israel, and we won't let them out of the country. Is that true? He said, yes, it is true. In 10 days, they were all out of the country. 10 days, they got a visa to go to Hong Kong. From there, go wherever you want to go. Now, David Marshall's an interesting fellow. When he went to China, his job was not to talk about helping the Jews who were trapped in Shanghai, but he put it on his agenda because he was a decent guy and a nice fellow. There's a great biography of him. He's, he's called the George Washington of Singapore. He is the George Washington of Singapore, and we don't know him. He later became the ambassador of Singapore to the United Nations. So he was living in New York. I went to see him when he was living in New York. I met him in Singapore as well. I said, you know, it's so amazing. The first prime minister of Singapore, and now the ambassador of the United Nations, is Jewish. You must be invited to so many synagogues and JCCs, you know, and probably, you know, Ari's calling every other day. You know. <laughs> you know what he told me? He said in two years he didn't get one phone call. If he would have been the prime minister of France, we would know him and he'd get a lot of phone calls. If he would have been the prime minister of Czechoslovakia, he'd get a lot of phone calls if he was at the United Nations. No one even knew him because we don't look east. We're always, always, always looking west. But there are a lot of fascinating stories in the Eastern world. In 1992, China established diplomatic relations with Israel. 
Well, good. Long overdue. On the first day of the Chinese ambassador in Israel, what does he do? You take your documents, representing your country with all the seals and the stamps, and you meet the foreign minister. I'm here to represent, you know, the People's Republic of China, and they welcome him, you know, probably drink a sake or a schnapps or something like that, you know, good luck to you. And you meet the East Asian desk, etc. It's a courtesy call. And you know, you're polite to each other, etc. But the Chinese ambassador, on his first day in Israel, opens his mouth to the foreign minister and the East Asian desk of the Israeli foreign ministry. He says, I have orders from my country that on my first day in Israel that I visit Jacob Rosenfeld. I would appreciate your informing me where I can find him. They said, thank you very much. We'll get back to you very quickly. The meeting is over and the Chinese ambassador leaves. When he leaves, they go around the table and they say, who the hell is Jacob Rosenfeld? <laughs> there are 40,000 Jacob Rosenfelds in Israel. He says, my butcher is Jacob Rosenfeld. Why does the Chinese ambassador want to see him? The guy in the grocery store is Jacob. Why, what? They go, anybody know Jacob Rosenfeld? They look up Jacob. Nothing. But the ambassador on his first day says, I have orders from my government to visit Jacob Rosenfeld. Who's Jacob? So the foreign ministry is not so stupid in Israel. They said, you know, there's an organization in Israel of Jews who formerly lived in China. They're not Chinese, but they lived in China, in Shanghai or in Harbin like the former prime minister, if he's not yet in jail, Ehud Olmert, his family. <laughs> no, but his parents spoke Chinese. And his ancestors are all buried in China. His family is part of that same group of Jews who lived in China. They're a fascinating group. Anyway, they have an organization called Igud Yotzei Sin, Society of Former Residents of China. They live in Israel and other places in the world. And they have a president, Teddy Kaufman, a very talented fellow, so they called Teddy Kaufman. They said the Chinese ambassador was just here, first day in China, have diplomatic relations, it's a happy occasion. He asked if he could visit Jakob Rosenfeld. Do you know where he is? He says, who? He says, Jakob Rosenfeld. He said, who's he? He says, what do you mean, who's he? We don't know who's he, that's why we're asking you. Don't you know who he is? I never heard of him. So what are you going to tell the Chinese? So Teddy Kaufman says, wait a second, I'll call Tokayer. He probably heard of him. So he calls me. He says, Chinese ambassador is here, wants to see Jakob Rosenfeld. Do you know where he is? I said, are you kidding? He said, no. I said, come on, come on. Stop it. Tell me the truth. He says, that's the truth. I said, you don't know Jakob Rosenfeld? I'll tell you who Jakob Rosenfeld is. Jakob Rosenfeld was a Jew from Vienna. He was trained as a urologist and gynecologist. He went to Dachau where they beat the living hell out of him. Came out of it almost dead, and he escaped. He had to get out, or he's dead. Where's he going to go? He went to Shanghai. He went to Shanghai, and he became a doctor in Shanghai. There are 100 Jewish, German Jewish doctors in Shanghai who escaped from the Nazis. There were 20,000 Jewish refugees in China. It's an interesting story that we also don't know. Anyway, anyway, he was a, maybe a liberal or a leftist. Maybe leftist is a better word. And he identified, Rosenfeld identified with the Chinese people who were starving, which they were, who were poor, as they were, in a corrupt government, which it certainly was, people dying in the streets of starvation every day. And if you had a job picking up the dead people who died in the streets of starvation, that was steady work. That was a very good job because they, they were dying by the 
all over on the streets. There were people who just died overnight. Anyway, Jakob Rosenfeld goes to the Chinese, call him the communist Chinese, and says, I would like to help you. I'd like to join you. They said, please. He joins the Chinese army, the People's Liberation Army. He's on the Great March. He becomes chief of medicine of the Chinese army. He also gets the rank of general in the Chinese army. He's the personal physician of Mao Zedong. And every place they traveled, he trained every village since they had no medicines and nothing. He made his own surgical instruments. He had to create his own medicines with his own head. He was a brilliant guy and a decent guy. And a lot of medicine is hygiene, is preventing disease. And he appointed and taught two, three people in every village to take care of what to do with water and what to do, try to prevent the spread of disease and basic, basic medicine. They loved him. There's a postage stamp for Jakob, a Chinese stamp for Jakob Rosenfeld. There's a statue of Jakob Rosenfeld. There's a hospital name for Jakob Rosenfeld. And within 10 years, there'll be a city built in China. And they build cities all the time because their population grows so fast. There'll be a city that will be called Jakob Rosenfeld. Chinese remembered him very well. After the war, after liberation, after liberation of 49, he went back to Vienna to see if any of his family survived. And nobody survived. Nobody survived Auschwitz. He had nobody there at all. But he had some relative, one relative in Israel. And he went to see him in Israel, worked for a while as a doctor in Israel, and died. And is buried in the Kiryat Shaul Cemetery in Tel Aviv. I asked Teddy Kaufman, when I saw him last, I said, what's the status of Jakob Rosenfeld now? He says, ooh. Standing operational procedures. Any Chinese, no, every Chinese who comes to Israel with any connection to the government, you're on a trade mission, you're an exchange student, anybody except a tourist, on your first day in Israel, you must get one of these, get some flowers, go to the cemetery, and put flowers on the grave of one of the heroes of China, Dr. General Jakob Rosenfeld. He's one of my heroes. How come we never heard of him? Incidentally, if you go to England, and we generally go to England frequently, if you were to go to the cemetery where Tugun Cone is buried, look at that tombstone. First of all, he has his hands like a Cohen on the top. Okay. And he has written in Hebrew his name and where he lived, etc. Then it's written in English, his name, Morris Abraham Cohen, how long he lived, etc., etc. And on the bottom, on the bottom, there's an inscription carved into the cement in Chinese and English signed by the vice premier of China, who's Madame Sun Yat-sen, paying respect, paying respect to Morris Abraham Cohen, a hero of the people of China. How come we don't know these guys? How come they're all so strangers, so much strangers to us? Am I boring you? I'll tell you another story. No Asian nation ever defeated a European nation. No Asian nation ever defeated a European nation. What does that mean? It means that the arrogant Europeans, like you and me, when we looked at the Asians, they were considered to be inferior. It was the Portuguese that captured, conquered 
India as the English, British conquered India. India did not conquer Norway. The British conquered India. It was the French that conquered French Indochina, Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh did not take over Czechoslovakia. It was the Dutch had the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia and Malaysia. The Malaysians never conquered France. And so there was a mentality of the superiority of the Europeans and no Asian nation ever defeated a European nation. In 1904, it's 100 years ago, there was a war called the Russo-Japanese War. The Russians and the Japanese. It's going to be a naval war. It's going to be fought at sea and a little bit at land. Who's going to win the war? No Asian nation ever defeated a European nation. And the Russians said, we're going to take our sailor hats like this, and the Japanese are going to go running away. After all, they only eat a bowl of rice, and they're weak, you know, and they can't fight with us. We're big, strong, we eat meat, we eat herrings and black bread, you know, smetana, all the cream. Well, not so simple. Japanese were doing okay in the war until they realized that every time they fire a shell from the ship, $100 goes into the ocean, and you never get it back. And they're running out of money. They need warships, they need munitions, and they need money. How are you going to get the money? You borrow money. That's called a war loan. They send Baron Korikio Takahashi, the name not important. They send him, he goes from Tokyo, he takes a ship to San Francisco. In San Francisco, he takes a train to New York. He doesn't stop in New York. He takes a ship from New York. New York was not important. He takes a ship from New York to go to London. He's in the right place. The international financial market was in London. And he goes to all the bankers explaining his needs and what the conditions are, etc. And he doesn't get a penny. Why? Never lend money to the loser. They don't pay it back. Lend money to the winner. Who's going to be the winner? The Russians. Europeans don't lose wars to Asians. And so they wine him and dine him. The steaks you'll get, the cigars you'll get. But nobody gave him a penny. There was an American Jewish banker born and raised in Germany. Brilliant and a very, very decent guy. His name, Jacob Schiff. It's a good name to know. It's a little before our time. The firm was Kuhn Loeb, was an investment banking house, and he made some great investments, like the Pennsylvania Railroad and Grand Central Station, American Telephone. He made a fortune of money. Every year, he returned to Germany to visit his family. On his return, he stopped off in London. Why? So that he could meet his colleagues, the bankers. He comes to London, rings up his friend. They said, how lucky you can be. Tonight there's a cocktail party and all the big bankers will be there. You see everybody in one shot. Schiff goes there and sees everybody. He really was fortunate. And afterward, the host says to Takahashi, the Japanese, he said, you know, there was somebody sitting at your table. You probably didn't even notice him. But he keeps asking, what are you doing here? Why'd you come here? What do you need? When do you need it? How do you need it? He said, it's interesting. Nobody else even asked about you. But he's asking, if I were you, I'd go look him up. He says, what's his name? 
He said, Jacob Schiff. He said, he's not on my list. He said, from your list, you got bupkis. You got nothing from your list. He's a man of means. If he wants to help you, he'll help you. If I were you, bring him up. Anyway, he calls Schiff, arranges a meeting, tells him about the Russian-Japanese war, etc. Schiff says, off the spot, on the spot, I'll give you half the money you need. Give you half the money. I'll give you a letter of guarantee. Take my guarantee to all the other banks that I'll guarantee the loan. And come back to me in two days. We'll see where we are. In two days, Takahashi comes back. He says, you'll excuse me, but with your letter of guarantee, I didn't get a penny. He says, what the hell did I know? I'll give you all the money you need. I'll give you all the money you need. It's 1904. He says, I'll take the money. He says, could you tell me privately why everybody refuses me and you give me the money? Schiff says, as a banker, I wouldn't give you a penny. I give you the money as a Jew. He says, what's that? You're talking to a Takahashi. He says, what's that? So Schiff says, do you know what just happened? He says, I didn't read today's paper. He says, I'm not talking about today. Do you know what recently happened? He says, well, what happened? There was a pogrom in Kishinev. He said, there was a what? Well, what's the Japanese know about it? What's a pogrom and what's Kishinev? He said, there was a pogrom in Russia. The chutzpah, the audacity of starting the 20th century, which should be the century of enlightenment. The audacity to start it with a pogrom against the Jews. You know what it means? They have nothing to wear. They have nothing to eat. No place to live. No job. So they're all frustrated. They take out their emotions. Kill the Jews, kill the Jews, kill the Jews. And they do that. And the next day, they still have no job, no place to live, no money in their pocket, and nothing to do. What do you gain? If you have internal problems, solve it. But don't just go killing Jews and think everything is okay. Schiff said he believed in the Bible. He did. And the Bible says that God uses nations to do the work of history. The Bible does say that. He said, Russia has a pogrom against the Jews. Hmm. You tell me now you have a war against the Russians. Hmm. I'll give you all the money you want on one condition. Beat the hell out of the Russians. He took the money. He took the money. Who won the war? The Japanese. The first time an Asian nation defeated a European nation. Schiff becomes a national hero. A national hero. He's invited to Japan to meet the emperor. No commoners meet the emperor. He's the first commoner to have a lunch. It was a kosher lunch, incidentally, in the palace. It was a long table. The emperor on one side. Schiff opposite on the other side. And all the lords and all the machers there are all sitting looking this way because nobody will face the emperor. That's respect for the emperor. You don't look at the emperor. Schiff all the way over there says to the guy right next to him, he said, you know, could you pass a message to the emperor that I would like to make a toast to the emperor? The Japanese fellow says, wait a second. You don't look at the emperor. You don't talk oh, to the emperor. <laughs> He said, you shouldn't even be here. You have no right to be here. We don't make toast to the emperor. Just, it's, out of, it's out of protocol. He says, just ask. So he says to the next guy, I don't know what to say. This foreigner's here. He wants to stand up and talk to the emperor. I don't know. So the message goes all the way down to the emperor. You know, we have this foreigner here. He doesn't know our ways. He wants to stand up. He wants to talk to you. He wants to make a toast. What should we tell him? The emperor says, why not? So anyway, the message goes all the way back. <laughs> okay. And Schiff stands us, stands up. 
And he said he was glad to be of help to Japan. He hopes that Japan will be a forward-looking and a progressive country, will be an asset to the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He sits down, quotes George Washington, first in peace and first in war. I have Schiff's diary. Then the emperor gets up to speak. Didn't do it before. The emperor gets up to speak. And he says, when no one believed in Japan, only one person in the world trusted us and had confidence in us, and that was you. Nobody else helped us at all. Maybe one day we could do for you what you did for us, but we will never forget what you did for us. It's the end of the meeting. It's the end of the meeting. 1938, 37, 39, 40. Japan was the closest ally of Nazi Germany. They were the Axis. There was a brutal war in the Pacific of Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal and Pearl Harbor, etc. At the cabinet level, at the cabinet level, I read the minutes of the cabinet. At the cabinet level, they said, you know, Schiff's people, that's us, are in trouble in Europe. Look what Schiff did for us. What did we ever do for him? Maybe if we can save Jews from Europe, because we're not afraid of Jews. They have no army. We can live with them and live without them. We're not, we're, not, we're not Christians. We're not Muslims. We don't have a problem with them. We're Asians. And so the Japanese had a plan at the highest level of the government to save all the Jews of Hitler's Europe without passport, visa, ransom, money, or trick. How do you do that? They sent a diplomat to Manhattan who met the president of the World Jewish Congress. Look at that title, The World, the Jews, and the Congress. It wasn't worth two cents, but that title was beyond imagination. He controls the world, the Jews, and the Congress. That's what it says. Incidentally, the name was Stephen Wise, and that was the right person to talk to. He had Roosevelt's private number. And he was a liberal marching up and down the streets for all the great liberal causes. He was in all, led all the parades. They met with Stephen Wise. One person met with Stephen Wise and offered to help and save without any trick the Jews of Hitler's Europe. And Stephen Wise politely but firmly told the Japanese diplomat to go to hell. The Japanese thought that the Jews were just as crazy as the Europeans were crazy with this anti-Semitism. And the plan failed. That's what I wrote a book about. The plan failed. And then right after that, you have Pearl Harbor and that nasty war in the Pacific. How much money did Jacob Schiff lend to the Japanese government in 1904? Anyone want to throw me a figure? 1904, not today's money. That was money. How much money do you think he provided to the Japanese government? Take a guess. 25 million. $25 million in 1904? You're sitting down? $196,450,000. I couldn't write such a check. $196,450,000 during the Russo-Japanese War. They paid it back at 4% interest, which was the rate at that time. Now you know why he's a hero of Japan. Now you know why he's a hero of mine. There were 20,000 refugees in Shanghai because of Schiff. They got there. The Japanese wanted millions of them. The only yeshiva to survive the war were saved by the Japanese, and they were in Kobe, Japan. All the yeshivas of Europe were destroyed by the Nazis. The only yeshiva to survive intact were saved by the, saved by the Japanese. 
It's interesting that at the Evian conference, and Evian is not water, Evian is a city in Europe, and at the Evian conference, the great nations of the world like Australia, New Zealand, France, England, America, Canada, all the great nations of the world sat down together with one question on the agenda. Is there any way to help the trapped Jews of Europe? From that meeting, not one Jew was saved. Not one Jew was saved. But all of them came from Christian countries. Asia is not Christian. There's never been anti-Semitism from Buddhists, Hindus, Confucians, none of them, Taoists, Shinto. They don't have that concept. No competition with each other. Or you have your way, we have, we, we have our way. All ways are right. All roads lead to the nirvana, all rays lead to the sun. It's interesting, the Japanese had a plan to save the Jews. There was a Chinese ambassador in Vienna. And if you wanted to get out of Germany, when you could get out of Germany, if you had a place to go, where are you going to go? You go to the Chinese. He gave you a visa to go to China. China had no room, no food, no job. But he said, we'll take you. Whatever we have, we'll split it with you. And 20,000 refugees, refugees were in China. 50,000 Jews were in the Far East. 50,000 Jews, lives were saved by the Japanese during the war. And in the Philippines, the president of the Philippines laid out 10,000 acres of empty land for Jews to come, settle it, and live there and get out, of, get out of Hitler's Europe. And the American government didn't like that very much. It was a colony of America, the Philippines. It's interesting how in the Orient, there was a sense of feeling for innocent people who were being massacred for no good reason. But when Canada spoke, or New Zealand spoke, or Australia, you know, in New Zealand, there are more sheep than people, and the place is empty. But they all would say, you're not going to make the Jews, the, you're not going to dump all the Jews of Europe in our land, although it was empty. But the Asians, who really had problems with food, they had no problems with saving Jews. It's a different part of the world, and we never look in the Eastern world. But Jacob Schiff is a hero. Tugun Cohen is a hero. David Marshall is a hero. Dr. Yaakov, General Yaakov Rosenfeld is a hero. And that's less than the tip of the iceberg. I would say, when you go to that part of the world, you should travel to that part of the world, put on a Jewish pair of glasses. You put on a Jewish pair of glasses, you'll see that country, whether it's Thailand or whether it's anywhere in India or China or Japan, you will see it from a different perspective, and you'll see it very, very honestly. Thank you very much.